Thanks for joining us for our podcast, Putting It Together. My name is Christina Clayton, one of the co-directors of the Northwest Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. We are part of a national network to disseminate and implement evidence-based practices for mental health into the field. We are coming to you from Seattle, Washington, and our Northwest region covers Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. However, in this virtual world, we have connected with people from all over, and we are very grateful to connect with you today. One of our goals is to provide free training and technical assistance in mental health topics. And now we are offering a podcast because we were told there weren't many podcasts out these days. Just kidding. But truly, we hope you hear some useful information and or inspiration that helps you put it together when working in this challenging and amazing field we call mental health. You can find out more about us, including our live event calendar, free online courses, resource library, and newsletter sign up by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. Hi, everyone. I am so glad to be here today with Dr. Lonnie Nelson again. We had him recently uh, on a podcast episode as well as a webinar, and he's doing another webinar for us today. And just a little introduction about him. Dr. Lonnie Nelson is a descendant of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and he earned his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arizona and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in rehabilitation psychology at University of Washington's Harborview Medical Center. 2012, he returned to the field of native health disparities through the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Career Development Award at the University of Washington School of Public Health. Dr. Nelson joined the Washington State University College of Nursing in 2015, and his work aims to address health disparities experienced by American Indian Alaska Native communities through multiple avenues. His current research interests focus on the elimination of health disparities in urban dwelling and other native populations through the application of culturally adapted evidence-based interventions and other patient-centered approaches to changing health behaviors, such as indigenized motivational interviewing and harm reduction treatments. Outside of work, he enjoys making and using traditional native archery gear and spending time with his seven-year-old daughter, Amelia. What we're here to talk with him today is a topic called cultural trauma, behavior, and trauma-informed systems of care, and specifically titled, How to See Your Setting Through a Survivor's Eyes. So he'll be sharing in our webinar if you want to watch that after it's recorded and posted, but that's what we'll be talking about today, how to make clinical and other settings more welcoming to those with a history of trauma. All right. Well, Lonnie, we are so happy to have you here again. It's such a pleasure to have you uh, with us two weeks in a row. And I know that you are doing an event for us later on uh, cultural trauma, behavior, and trauma-informed systems of care. And I know that's work you've been doing for quite a while. So I uh, just want to open it up and, and if you could share, what does that mean? What does that inform in our practice? And, you know, let's just start with what that topic means to you. Sure. Um, I mean, I guess that the simplest way to explain it is how I explained it to my daughter this morning before she went off to uh, the childcare here at the conference. And that's how to best take care of people who have been hurt 
and not just physically hurt, but maybe emotionally hurt and and maybe have a hard time trusting and um, have experiences where trusting in the people that are supposed to be trying to help them maybe didn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. And um, how to design our systems of care with those folks in mind and um, and how to position ourselves to best be able to be helpful to them and provide an environment both physically and socially and emotionally that is conducive to healing for those folks. Yeah, I've tried to explain what we do uh, to my kids as well. They're a bit older than yours and it's it's complex, you know, and I think at the end of the day, you know, you're you're helping people, you're helping people who have been hurt. Um, but that's that's a really uh, nice way to try and explain it. How how did you get into this kind of trauma work? I don't know if that was always your aim in your career. Um, and you, you mentioned a lot of this at, at our last episode around many people and most crises come from a place of trauma. So is that where it started or or how did you come to focus on this? Um, it, it was a little bit by accident. Um, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at Harborview Medical Center here in Seattle. And um, that, of course, is a level one trauma center for the Whammy region, the Washington, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, Hawaii. You know, anybody who has something very serious and traumatic happen to them they get sent there. And um, so during that year, uh, I carried the pager that the nurses all had the number to in case somebody was having a particularly hard time. And so uh, I was also at the time carrying a team on the neuro rehabilitation floor, which was four West at the time. Um, But, you know, I was basically steeped in trauma because of my interest in neurorehabilitation. People don't usually end up in a place where they need neurorehabilitation if they haven't experienced some kind of trauma. You know, my my focus on native health disparities also sort of naturally dovetailed with that. Growing up as the the son of an IHS nurse and Indian Health Service nurse, um, you know, I I grew up in Indian country and, and experienced what it's like on reservations and what it's like to live there. And Trauma is a lot more likely to occur in those communities. And so um, I, I don't think I ever meant to become an expert in trauma-informed care. It just kind of happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I always love asking questions like this because a lot of us found our way to different parts of the field, not necessarily intentionally. You dive in here and then you discover something you want to explore more. I mean, I think it's it's not a new concept that trauma is not just a major physical accident or a wartime situation or a necessarily like a one-time event. And, you know, I think you talking about what does it mean to do crisis de-escalation last time? And then now we're talking about what does it mean to have a system? So, you know, I'm, I know you're going to get into this later in the webinar if people want to hear the longer version, but you mentioned some key ingredients for creating a trauma-informed system. And I think 
that's always helpful. We have such turnover in the systems. We're trying to accomplish so much and we can miss some of these really simple things. I think that we just don't even see, you know, and I think when people come in and do like a trauma-informed assessment of your lobby or your paperwork or your intake process. So what are the things that you have found in doing this work really need to be considered when doing uh, looking at your system and being a trauma-informed system? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there are the sort of, I guess, to me, obvious things of the physical characteristics of where people are going to be coming to receive care. You know, obviously, it should be clean, well-lit, uh, friendly, welcoming environment, but also with some security presence um, to help manage problematic situations that may arise when, you know, people of varying backgrounds are, are in crisis or, or, or in need of care. Um, and then there's, there's staff training, um, and making sure that your staff are oriented to the likely histories of the people that they're going to be providing care for. Um, and I think you, you mentioned this briefly, you know, your assessment procedures can be really critical and, you know, you want to try and avoid re-traumatizing people as much as you possibly can. And getting them to rehash what has happened to them, while sometimes necessary to understand where they are and what they're experiencing, you know, should be kept to a minimum. And it shouldn't happen by multiple individuals at multiple points in the person's course of care. Um, ideally, it should happen once and be disseminated to anyone who needs to know the information and not disseminated to anyone who doesn't necessarily need to know the information for the person's care. Um, and and those, those kinds of things, I think, aren't immediately obvious to some folks in, in our systems of care. Um, you know, everybody feels like they want to be the one to elicit the person's story and be the one that they can connect with. And, and really, that's not necessary and can be iatrogenic for everyone that they encounter to want to be the person that they tell their story to. Um, and, and so it's things like this where, where you just want to keep in mind what the experience of the person entering the system is like and has been and how to best receive them with care and with an understanding of their emotional experience not only of what they may have been through, but of what they're now going through. Sometimes the process of, of accessing care itself can be scary, you know, for somebody who hasn't necessarily had all that positive of interactions with various systems of care. Um, it, it can be a foreign experience and they, they can be uncertain who to trust, how to trust, and with how much. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd say those are the main ingredients. I think it's interesting that you say that because I think it's often not until we ourselves get care, whatever that means. It could be for physical illness, could be for, you know, uh, emotional support, mental health issues, that as a helping professional, you don't realize sometimes how awful. And, you know, assuming that most of us, uh, hopefully working in the field, at least are employed and probably have housing. I know that's not, you know, always a given. Um, the state of our field is not well reimbursed or anything like that. But but imagine, you know, we know how to navigate through some of these things. And it's 
second nature to us, but I've certainly had that experience a number of times like, Ooh, this is not exceptional. Um, it's good that I can see what we're doing because I've been through it on the other side. Um, what, what are things that people can think about? I mean, you mentioned not having to rehash and sort of the iatrogenic um, portion of, you know, that being in care or the exploration of these services or asking all these questions can sort of cause some of the problems and that our environment, we all know we, we have a way we set up our homes, the way we set up our offices. If we have an office, um, what, what are the effect on environment, you know, that, that people can think about what that they normally may not, like you said, it's not obvious. What are, what are things that people could do in whatever space they have control over, um, whatever process they have control over, like I'm sure, you know, if you could change the world, there'd be a lot of different things, but perhaps not going through your entire life story on your very first meeting that really dives into every single bad thing and, you know, may not really ask about anything that's going well. Um, what what can people do in their one-on-one interactions, their initial meetings or whatever space they they meet people? As far as arrangement of the space, I would say that the, the number one thing is probably safety and a sense of control for the person who's entering that space. So you, know, you don't want to block their way to the exit, for instance. I mean, that's that's like a fundamental basic no-no, right? <laughs> Let them have easy access to the exit. Um, you know, it, it, you want the environment to be quiet if possible. Um, no sudden loud noises, um, you know, clean, um, you know, essentially you, you don't want there to be any surprises for the person mm. and, and you want them to feel physically and socially safe. I, I guess that that's probably the key point is that feeling of safety and comfort. Yeah. And, and, and anticipating knowing what's going on, because I think what we, we may not appreciate is that, like you said, this is often an intimidating or frustrating experience. Like maybe people have been in lots of services and to them, they're walking in expecting the worst because they've had just awful, you know, interactions or systems or the way society, you know, so people are coming in with all sorts of trauma as you underscore time and time again, we don't know where people have been. We don't know what they've been through. And so really going over and above to take care and see it through that lens, I think is, is what I'm hearing you say. And then what if we can't control what's on our paperwork? We can't control the, the environment. Perhaps we're in a, you know, a setting where we don't even have the ability to, to do that, but to the best of our abilities, are there things in our interactions that we can also do to try to alleviate some of that stress or just ways of talking? I, I would say that as far as paperwork and, and assessment procedures go, limiting the amount of digging that you do, you know, just asking the person for the most basic information and letting them share the amount that they're comfortable sharing um, and not asking for, you know, excessive detail, um, not demanding a perfect timeline of events that is linear. Um, you know, these, these things, again, they seem, they sound minor, but they make a huge difference. Um, you know, the more detail that you try to get at as a person conducting an assessment, the more the person has to unearth, 
that maybe they've been able to cope with in, you know, maybe not the best of ways, but at least in a way that keeps them functional. Um, and, you know, to, to the greater an extent that they have to dig up that material and re-encounter it from, you know, wherever they may have tucked it away, um, you know, the greater the potential for re-traumatization and, and, you know, as I mentioned before, iatrogenic effects comes in. Kind of summarizing, I mean, think, thinking about this before these encounters happen, just keeping that on our mind, we may be rushing from thing to thing and may have a line of people that need to talk to us, but it also means being present in at least a calming, safe place, even if it's just your presence that you can offer that. And I also imagine normalizing some of the hoops that have to happen. You know, it's sort of like that, <laughs> the, the MI sandwich, perhaps, you know, you're starting with like, sorry, this is terrible. And like using those skills, but then, okay, now we got to do this stuff. And then closing on, on, on a positive note, you know, humanizing the experience. And, you know, even if you have to do these things that are not enjoyable, I think just humanizing and normalizing. So it's not, doesn't feel like an us them experience and that you're just, you know, digging in. And, and I think those are really helpful points. Yeah, you know, that's one of the key things in doing trauma work is helping the person understand that they're having a perfectly normal reaction to a terrible situation. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and just letting them know there's nothing wrong with them for the way that they're responding to this, that this is messed up and they are like the superstar here for, for surviving it. And, you know, when people are experiencing acute stress disorder, they can feel like they're losing control uh, and, and just helping them to understand that that's a normal reaction to bad situations you know, that can be really helpful for folks just to to know that what they're experiencing is not outside the norm that mm -hmm. you know for situations like they're finding themselves in the key is surviving that when we think about making change i always love that exercise and i'm sure you do it all the time too like when when we had something to change how long did it take <laughs> how long do we think about it are we still thinking about it uh so thinking about at our most struggling moment asking for help, what that was like, and then getting maybe someone who isn't sensitive to that need, how that feels, just, just salt in the wound, you know? And so I think just humanizing for ourselves, remembering that, you know, even if we've been doing this a long time, that each person in each encounter is an opportunity to at least not make it worse <laughs> and perhaps make it better. Five minutes with a calming, safe presence can do something. And I think that's what we need to hear these days when it's so fast paced all the time, but. Thank you. It's it's always a pleasure talking about this stuff and we'll see you uh, soon. I hope I have you back. Okay, great. You can find resources related to the episode in our show notes. So be sure to check those out. Learn more about us by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. You can also follow us on social media at NWMHTTC. This broadcast is brought to you by the Northwest MHTTC, which is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. However, the content does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again so we can keep putting it together. Take care.